I'm sure you come across that term, uh, theologians call it the fall and the original sin. Now in your mind, you probably would want to ask, why is it called the fall? What is its ramification for Christian living? Now to those of you who read a little bit more, you know there are five chapter gospel. Uh, creation, fall, redemption, renewal and restoration, the five chapter uh, gospel. Uh, but therefore, some other Christians, there are only two chapter gospel. Uh, the creation and then uh, the restoration or the fall and then creation and the restoration uh, fall together, then restoration. Meaning that they know uh, Adam and Eve has sinned against God and then we have inherited that sin and then we're waiting to go to heaven. But there is also something that is happening here, uh, the redemption and the renewal. Uh, I need you to know a little bit of this background. The creation, I think uh, Pastor Micah has talked about chapter 1 and chapter 2. And if you have gone through the sermon, you would have known that the, the creation that God made is perfect. How things ought to be. You know, we know that creation is good and perfect. And then when something gone wrong, we say how things ought to be. So our heart longs for that original creation. And then today we are looking at the fall. That is how things went wrong. We are looking at the fall, the original sin. And then the redemption, how things have been made right in Christ. Uh, we will not look at in this chapter. And then renewal would be life here between the redemption of Christ and his return. Uh, that is what I think we all uh, have been always talking about, that the sermons ought to be relevant to our life, meaning the, the Word of God ought to speak into our life. That is how God is renewing our life in Christ. And then finally, the restoration, a vision of how beautiful life will be in God's new world. So when you read the scripture, you need to locate where the scripture is. We, today we are looking at the, at the second chapter of the gospel, which is the fall. Now why is it called the fall? Because it is a fall from innocence. Uh, Adam was naked, so was Eve, and they felt no shame before the fall. And they felt shame only after the fall. So that gives us a sense of what uh, the fall is about. Uh, Adam's moral pur purity was corrupted and his disobedience affected humanity, affected even creation. That's why when you read Romans 8, uh, it says creation is subject to frustration. Creation is groaning because of the fall of Adam and the whole of creation has been affected until today. And then humanity also has been affected and that means you and I have been severely affected because of the fall of Adam and the original sin. And leading to physical death and spiritual death and corrupted our relationship with God and the relationship with one another, the interpersonal relationship. So this original sin was imputed to all of Adam's descendants, meaning that the original sin is considered to be the source of humanity's inherent tendency towards evil and sin. 
Now, meaning when you look into deep into your heart, your propensity to sin and towards evil all come from the original sin. That is the biblical teaching. Now, if you are a Buddhist, then you know some Buddhist teaching. I think those who know Mandarin, they call meaning the men are originally born good, born good and pure. And the Islamic teaching also talk about uh, they don't believe in the original sin. And so that is the background, meaning that we inherited the sinful nature from Adam and we are born with a tendency to sin. And the only way out is the redemption that God has provided through Jesus Christ. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray that this afternoon as we hear your word preached to us, may our hearts be captivated by the beauty of the person of Christ and his finished work. May we grow in deeper affection for Christ who died for us. And as we ponder how this fall of Adam and the original sin has affected us, and how, Almighty God, that you have brought restoration, redemption to us, and there will come a day when we will be perfected and glorified. Lord, as we live in between the time of Jesus coming 
and living in a time where sin, how sin continue to affect us. But we thank you that God, you have delivered us from the power of sin and the bondage to sin. And we know that sin continue to exert its influence. And may you help us as we study your word. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we will look how the fall took place and then the effects of the fall and how it has affected all of us. And then we will end by looking at what God has done to bring in redemption that the fall has affected us. How the fall took place is described in chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. And you notice that last week, when Pastor Micah talked about the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve, and in chapter 2 verse 23, Adam said to Eve, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What a beautiful poem to be recited at the wedding, at the garden wedding. And then in chapter 3, immediately it says, And now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. I do not know what is, comes to your mind. In a garden wedding, I've conducted several garden weddings uh, in the cool of the evening, nice weather, and then officiating, getting the bride and the bridegroom to exchange while and then suddenly you look at the bush there, there is a serpent. Someone is a talking serpent. I don't know what, what comes to your mind. You know that God had created a, a perfect world and a perfect garden for Adam and Eve. Everything is good. And then God fashioned Eve and brought her to Adam as a suitable helper to him, as his, uh, as his marriage partner. And life in the garden of Eden was harmonious and beautiful. And, and God blessed them with abundance. You know, all the fruit trees, you thought that they're going to live happily ever and after. And then there was a, a serpent there in the bush. And someone is a talking serpent. And he said, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God has made. Now, what comes to your mind when you hear that this particular serpent could engage in dialogue with Eve? What comes to your mind? The narrator said that the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals. What, is, what was the, the identity of this serpent? Was the serpent a real animal? Now, how many of you think that the serpent was a real animal? Spencer? Yeah, Andy and a few others. How many think it's a myth? You know, they are, they are, they are non-believers think that this is a fairy tale. Where got serpent that can talk on? They, they cannot reconcile. How many of you think that is, is a symbol of Satan? Yeah, quite a number. How many say, I do not know? You're standing on a fence. Oh, okay, you don't know. It's, it's quite complex, you know? And, and I try to reconcile. No, if it is not a real animal, why then the text say that the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that God had made? Then if it is a real animal, then how come the serpent can talk? 
Of course, some try to reconcile by saying that uh, demon possess the, the serpent and then talk to uh, Eve and engage Eve in that conversation. So either this is literal, if it is literal, then one has to take the Satan, speak through the serpent. Or metaphorical or figurative language that depict the serpent as symbolic of Satan. Now, I do not think that this is uh, uh, something... I do think that the animal is literal, serpent. I do really think it's serpent. Yet behind the serpent, it is Satan actually speaking to Eve. But of course, scholar has reconciled that by saying that it is a language that the narrator is using to put across. And it is a representing the serpent representing Satan. Now, there are many views put forward. In the Genesis account, the serpent is depicted as cunning and deceptive, which are the characteristics of Satan. Now, I do not want to go into all this detail you can actually get from the, from the, from the books, or you can do the, what you call the chat GPT. But you have to be very careful when you use chat GPT. I'm of the view that serpent represents Satan, and there are scriptural evidence of this view. Now, let me quickly go through a few, uh, few verses. Ali, you could put out. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Uh, can you help, help her? Uh, because we have to go in sync. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, uh, referred to Satan as a dragon or the ancient serpent, which some scholars interpret as a reference to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the dragon, if you read the verses, it says the dragon was thrown down and the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. Now, of course, here, Satan is in the garden trying to lead uh, Adam and Eve astray to disobey God. And Satan was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. At least, Revelation gives us a glimpse of the background uh, of the things happen in heaven. Because in my mind, I've been thinking that God created a perfect world. There's no evil. How come there's suddenly an evil you know, being present in the garden? It has to come from outside of the original, the perfect creation of God. So Revelation gives us a glimpse that there was war in heaven uh, between the angel Michael and his angel fought against Lucifer and, and, and the angels. And then Satan was thrown into the world. Satan will lead the world astray. Now, Ezekiel chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 28, the passage seems to be a description of the original fall of Satan. Now, you read the, the, the verses, uh, uh, Ezekiel chapter 28, 28 verses 11 to 19. Uh, you may turn to your Bible or you follow the verses. And, and that description may be talking about the king of Tyre. But then there are other verses that this seems to, to describe the king. It says he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He was the anointed cherub who, was a, who has a special place 
next, next to the throne of God. Now, because of his special place and his great beauty, this angel was lifted with pride and he rebelled against God and was thrown down on earth. Now, of course, when you read Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 17, it says that because of the pride and, uh, and uh, so I threw you to the earth. Now, you, you see the verses that Satan was being thrown on earth. And, and Ezekiel, and as well Isaiah passage, Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 15, and all these expositors see the passage as pointing to Satan. And that is a scholar's view. And I, I do take that view. Satan worked behind the king of Tyre and other kings. Satan was the prime mover, the unseen deceiver who worked against God and his people. And in heaven, Satan was rebelling against God. And so God threw Satan and, and the angels down to the Garden of Eden. And that became the whole problem uh, uh, that we, we experience today. <clears throat> and Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the heaven. Now, of course, that passage was talking, Jesus was uh, uh, hearing the report of the disciples coming back, telling them how uh, they delivered you know, the demons from uh, people who were possessed by demons. And then Jesus said, I saw Satan fall, li fall like lightning from heaven. Now, we are not exactly sure what Jesus was referring to, whether it's the original time when Satan was throw, thrown down to the earth. But at least we see all these scriptural passages that talk about Satan being thrown to the earth and into the Garden of Eden. And of course, Ezekiel uh, uh, chapter 28 verse 13 say, You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Now here, of course, the king wasn't in Eden. Uh, a scholar therefore pointed to the presence of uh, uh, Satan in the Garden of Eden. Now, whatever, how explanation and interpretation that you may have, but one thing is certain, that this is no ordinary serpent. It actually, it is a way maybe the narrator is describing that Satan masquerading himself, like as the angel of light, you know, masquerading himself and engage in dialogue with, with Eve. Now, how Eve fell into Satan's deception and succumbed to temptation and disobey God's command. We are still now talking about the original fall and the temptation. Of course, this passage has also relevance. We also face temptation every day. Satan would continue to work in our hearts and our mind and in situation uh, because Satan's chief aim is to attack God and attacks God's creation, attacks God's church, and attacks God's people, and attacks marriages, families. So you are also the prime target of Satan's attacking, Satan's attack, and through temptation. Now, so we look at the way how Satan's deception is being played out. Firstly, we look at the first verse. I would say the, uh, the serpent questioned Eve about God's instruction. Serpent questioned Eve about God's instruction. The serpent said, did God really say 
you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, when you look at chapter 2, verse 16, what did God command Adam? You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. I would say the deception comes in doubting, creating doubt in God's word. It's just like, say, uh, 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 your mother uh, were to tell you, children, uh, your mother tell you, inside the fridge, you can eat everything except the cheesecake. You know, the first section, the chief cake, you do not eat, but the rest you can eat. So you got fruits, you got other cakes. And then come along someone and say, did your mom say you must not eat anything in the fridge? Creating doubt in you. It's actually doubting God. You know, it's, it's actually, we need to be aware of the strategy of the deception of Satan. Satan deception always centered on getting us to doubt the word of God. Did God really say? You know, it is almost like saying that why would, you know, creating doubt in your mind that why would God want to prohibit us from eating? You know, all the things that Something in the fridge? Why would your parents stop you from eating? Except one thing. You know, creating doubt in, in your mind about God's word. Secondly, we see that the serpent create doubt about the goodness of God by actually accusing God that he is withholding something good from us. Now, here the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the midst, in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. Now, of course, Eve added more to what God say, or you will die. It is almost in that dialogue you can hear, like Satan is like accusing God that he's withholding something good. You know, you can, we, we uh, woman is saying, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden. Uh, but, but, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. God is holding something good, that something precious, that God did not want you to have it. God is denying you. Not in that sense, the woman's mind already playing her walk already. So by doubting God's, God's word, by, by accusing God is withholding something good from us, and then thirdly, you see the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You know, now is the serpent, uh, the, or Satan is directly contradicting God's word. Satan went a step further to give the reason why Eve should not trust God. Now, isn't that sound very, very familiar to us when we are faced with temptation? You will not surely die because God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so from doubting God's word to doubting the goodness of God to contradicting the, the word of God directly, and then 
by denying the truth of God's word, telling us that there is no consequence when we disregard God's command. Now, those of you who read storybooks or even, uh, uh, you know, in the interaction with the parents, particularly for teenagers, uh, you know, the forbidden fruit, the phrase forbidden fruit has always been attributed to sexual temptation. Uh, for men and women, boys and girls who are not married, and then the forbidden fruit, the sexual intercourse is very alluring, very tempting. And then, you know, Satan is telling you there's no consequence. There's no consequence to premarital sex. What did, what did the Word of God say? What is the clear command of the Word of God? But of course, we live in a society now where the Word of God is even more directly contradicted, not in the area of even premarital sex, in so many other areas. In the same sex, marriage, where the clear command of God is prohibiting same sex marriage. Marriage in the original context is one man and one woman in the covenant, covenantal marriage. So Satan would continue to attack the word of God. So for those young boys, young girls, men and women who are not married, forbidden fruit is very attractive. And then you begin to play in your mind. You know, you hear voices. Satan is speaking to you that God is holding something good from you, something very pleasurable, something so wonderful. Why do you need to wait until you're married? Just have it, eat it, and enjoy it. You cannot trust what God says. Satan is whispering to you. <coughs> so Satan's <coughs> strategy has not changed. <coughs> His strategy is to get us wondering <clears throat> if God is holding out a good thing. His strategy is to get us to question God's word in order to prepare us to believe in his lie. Now, of course, I'm using premarital sex as just an example. It can be in multiple situations. Now, you may be in a miserable situation Satan may be whispering to you and say, God does not care for you. He does not love you. Satan attacks the character of God. Now, if in that kind of situation, what would you think? I have learned to look at the cross, to look at the cross where Jesus died. I do not need to doubt the love of God, that Christ loved me enough to die for me on the cross. So I don't need to doubt the love of God. Even I'm in suffering, I don't need to doubt the love of God. But Satan will whisper in my ear, look, your suffering is because you serve God and he doesn't care for you. So there are many ways in which Satan can attack us. But he wants us to distrust God and to doubt the, the, the goodness of God. Then we look at how Eve succumbed to temptation. Verse 6. And then God Adam to go against God's command. Now I want you to notice the process, how Eve fell into temptation and how it might happen to us. Now notice the process, how Eve fell into temptation. Now many of the temptation, you do not immediately jump into it. 
there is a process in which one succumbs to temptation. Now let's look, notice the process. When the woman, here referred to Eve, in verse 6, she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now I, I can also paraphrase this, huh? and this is not to make fun of women, because I also know men's temptation differently. Women's temptation can be this way. When a woman saw the expensive, beautiful handbag, and it was pleasing to the eye, she knew her husband had no money to buy, and she knew that if she were to buy that and get her husband to buy for her, husband got to borrow money or he will be in debt. And so she saw the designer handbag and it's so wonderful to have the bag pleasing to the eye and that you will get praises from your colleagues and desirable to gain approval. And what did she do? She persuaded the husband or she get the, the credit card and swipe it and bought a handbag of $30,000. I'm just paraphrasing. Huh? Now, this is not to, don't take it that I'm making fun of women. I know that women have this temptation. Men's temptation is different. Men's temptation, money, power, and sex. The three things. Now, so here, if temptation, she saw the fruit of the tree was good for food. She saw the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that God told Adam, her husband, not to eat it. And in any other fruit tree, they can eat it. And pleasing to the eye. It's just like us Malaysians look at durian tree. Musang King, pleasing to the eye. And desirable to, for gaining wisdom. She took some and added. She wanted wisdom. She wanted the knowledge of good and evil. And so she added and she gave some to her husband who was with her and, and, and he added. First thing, what did you notice? What did you notice about the process of succumbing to the temptation? Number one, it started with ignoring the clear command of God. Ignoring the clear command of God. In Genesis chapter 2, 15, God gave very specific and clear command. Eve cannot say that I do not know. Adam cannot say, no, God didn't make it clear to me. You cannot say the Bible did not make it clear to me. The commandments of God. God had provided abundance of food in the form of fruit trees for Adam and Eve to enjoy. God is generous. You cannot say that God is denying you to enjoy the abundance of things that he, he has given you. God only prohibited Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning that God wanted Adam and Eve to be totally dependent on him and not to acquire knowledge of good and evil independent of God. And God spelled out the consequence of violation. When you eat of it, you will surely die. So God has drawn clear boundaries 
for us not to cross. Now, when we ignore the clear command of God, then of course we'll reap the consequence of, of our action. There is nothing ambiguous about God's instruction. It is the same in the commands of God in the Bible. And we don't have to second guess what God has said. Usually, when we try to rationalize away the clear instruction and the clear command of God, then we are in big trouble because we have a tendency towards evil by rationalizing away the clear instruction of God. So there's nothing that we don't have to second guess what God has said. The issue is, who do you choose to believe? Do you believe in what God say? Or do you believe in what society say? Or do you believe in what Satan is whispering in your ear? So the process of succumbing to temptation, number one, is start by ignoring the clear command of God. Second, is doubting God's goodness and doubting the consequence of disobedience. In, in chapter 3, verse 4, and Satan say, you will not die. Satan's lies. Meaning that when you <coughs> directly disobey the command of God, nothing will happen to you. Nothing, nothing. God will not punish you. Nothing will happen to you. Now, Satan obviously was lying to, to Eve. And he said that God knows that when you eat of it, you will not die, but your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. I think that is a half lie. And to have the knowledge of good and evil like God is very appealing, uh, at least to Eve. Because Satan said that, or to the serpent, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation of wanting to know and determine good and evil independent of God is too great. Meaning that Eve said, now I can be like God. I don't have to depend on God to tell me what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. Isn't that the temptation is very great to all of us with a propensity to sin? You know, I don't need God to tell me what is right and wrong. I don't need God to be the arbiter of right and wrong or morality. I don't need God to be the ultimate standard of good and evil, what is right and what is wrong. I determine what is good and bad. I determine what is right and wrong. Isn't it to be autonomous, to be independent of God in decision making? I don't need any reference to God in my decision making. That is the reason why a lot of people in fact, I've encountered some of my good friends when I share the gospel with them. One of the main reasons they do not want to come to Christ is because they want to live their life without any one to tell them what is right and wrong. They do not want God to hold them accountable. You know, they want to live that kind of life. It's very appealing. You know, you don't need to, to be accountable to God. You decide what is right and wrong. So this temptation of wanting to know and, and to determine good and evil independent of God is just too great for Eve. You see, in, the, uh, in our Tuesday group, our pastors and the missionaries, we have the study 
on this book called Why Gender Matter. Uh, it's a book that talks about the men and women are made differently and talk about gender fluidity rather than the binary, gender binary. Gender binary means when we look at scripture, clear teaching, God made men and women, male and female, God made, made this. But the gender fluidity, I was told, the alternative model of gender, gender containing five sexes. I'm not sure whether you're aware, but I think the young people, the, the millennial, the Y, Z, Z generation would know this better than my boomer generation. There are five sexes, male, female, they call it the mum and the firm and the hum. I don't even know what it is. Uh, the mermite, frodite, whatever. The mum, the firm, and the, and the hum. Uh, go and check. And so there might come a time you've got to be careful when you address someone. You, you look at the man, you say, he. You look at the woman, you say, she. They say, no, you're offending me. I'm not a he. I'm not a she. I'm someone else. I'm a mum, or I'm a firm, or I'm a hum. Probably now they come up with more than five five sexes. So, <clears throat> to have the knowledge of good and evil independent of God is so tempting. You know, society begins to define all kinds of things without reference to God. So, firstly, you have ignoring the clear command of God and then secondly, the doubting, doubting the consequences of uh, disobedience, doubting what God says, you want to be independent of God, and then finally, you begin to cross the line, overstep the boundary, by rationalizing instead of believing in the, in the standard and the word of God, in the, what God says in the, in the Bible. So, gaining wisdom without reference to God is very, very dangerous. And that was Eve's problem. It was pleasing to the eye, appealing to the eye gate, desirable for gaining wisdom, which is beneficial, and then Eve succumbed to temptation. Now, of course, here we also see Adam fail in his leadership as a husband. And he was there with Eve, when the serpent tempted her, he was silent. He did not stop Eve from crossing the line. Now you can almost see this in the life of many of us, the men, Christian men who are very passive. Uh, next week we'll look at the punishment of God um, and see how this affected husband and wife relationship, men and women. Uh, we'll come to that. But suffice to say this here, we see Adam, he was there, he did not exercise his leadership to correct Eve, to say that God has commanded us not to eat the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam simply was passive and he was silent and then he took the fruit that Eve gave to him and he added, and that action was so bad and so serious, it has ramification until today. It affected you, affected me, affected the whole creation, affected everything in this life. So we have seen 
so far, the temptation and the fall, the process, how Satan, you know, his strategy, and then the process of falling into temptation. Now we look at the consequence of the fall. That is the immediate effects of succumbing to temptation and disobedience to the clear command of God. In verse 7, he said, The eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now we see the, the several effects. I would only single out four, uh, I think four of them. Number one, feeling shame. They sew fig leaves together and make covering for themselves. Before the fall, they were naked and it was beautiful. You know, in the garden, they walk about naked and there's no shame, nothing to be shameful of. They were pure, innocent, beautiful. That was what God made them. But this sense of shame came about because of the fall. And then they suddenly realized they were naked and they quickly sew fig leaves together and make covering for themselves, feeling shame. Now, the Western people, when they read this, and they read it differently from the Asian Christian, Western Christian will see this as guilt, that Adam and Eve have a sense of guilt, guilt feeling, that they have done something wrong, so they quickly cover their wrong, cover their, their guilt feeling. But... Asian Christians will see this as feeling shame. They try to cover their shame. Now, is it shame or guilt? Probably it's both. Now, what is the difference between shame and guilt? What is the difference between same, a sense of uh, shame and a sense of guilt? Shame, as I know it in our Asian uh, perspective or our own experience when you do when you committed something shameful uh, you 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 commit sin that are shameful it will often leads to feelings of embarrassment if you are being known of the things that you have done you know it's like your your sense of worth is no more someone come to know the thing that you have done and then they do not accept you on him anymore they said you're such a lousy fellow you're so bad has to do with your personhood, who you are. You are really a bad person. You know, it's, it's, it's actually uh, a sense of uh, uh, worthlessness. You're no longer of worth. People will not accept you if they come to know what you have done. So there's a kind of self-condemnation. Whereas guilt feeling is a feeling that one has done something wrong, breaking the commandment of God. You have done something wrong. You know, you, you, you are guilty. You acted wrongly. So there's a difference between guilt and shame. I think it's both. But here, I think it's a description of them feeling shame. They see themselves naked. Of course, they are also guilty. They feel guilt. Now, um, so the first thing, the effects of the fall is that they are feeling shame. So they quickly try to cover their shame by their own ways, sewing fig leaves together and make covering for themselves. Secondly, in verse 8, it says that they heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
Now, God is using human language. God is a spirit. They heard the sound. They're so intimate in their relationship with God. You know, they walk with God, Adam and Eve. So, uh, Moses was using the language, human language, to describe of the intimacy. You know, originally in the garden, they, they know that God was there. And so, God was walking in the garden. They could almost sense that God is there. And they hid from the Lord God among, among the trees of the garden. They tried to hide themselves. Now, children, you do know where, where, where this comes from? When, when your parents, when you did something wrong, and then you, you try to run somewhere and hide from your parents, it came from here. came from the fall. And adult, same thing. When we did something shameful, we hide ourselves. We, we don't want people to know. When we sin, instead of running to God to confess our wrongdoing and ask for forgiveness, we run away from God. You know, intuitively, we run away from God. <clears throat> Verses 9 to 10, God called the man, where are you? I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. Now you notice what did Adam say? I was afraid. Why must one be afraid if you have known God, you walk with God? It's just like children, if you have known your daddy and mommy to be so loving to you, you know your daddy and mommy to be someone who really cares for you. When you did something wrong, why are you hiding? Why are you running away from your parents? You know, you did something to your neighbor, you took a, 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 you know, something you threw into the garden, and hit the glass of the, the window, and then broke the, the, the window of your neighbor, and then you run away. You are hiding from your parents. You, 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 when the parents confronted you, you say, no, not me, not me, it's someone else. You know, you, you, you hide, you run away. Instead, you should go to your parents and seek your parents' help. So in that sense, Adam should actually confess to God. But instead, Adam was afraid. And he said, because I was naked, so I hid. When we do something wrong, we instinctively hide. This is the effect of the fall. And then you see, fourthly, the effects of the fall, not only feeling shame, running away from God, hiding in shame, but blaming instead of owning up one sin. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat them? And then you, you, you see what the Adam say in verse 12. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree. I ate it. Husband always blame the wives. Right or not? Husband, you blame your wives. You, know, you, you blame your wives. You don't, you don't own up to your own action. And then Adam, we see Adam place the blame for his sin Onto Eve, and then also blaming God. He said, uh, uh, the woman you put here with me in the garden, you give me this woman. You know, it's like something went wrong in a marriage and you blame God, say, God, you are the one, uh, give me this woman. Uh. That's why my life now is in a mess. So you blame, uh, you blame God. Everything you blame God. My business failure, yeah, uh, the woman, uh, the wife, uh, you give me this wife. Cannot manage one. Cannot manage family, cannot manage the business, so I'm in a mess. I owe people money. Everything you blame your wife. And then you blame God. 
And then it was, uh, yeah, Adam said, is Eve who gave me the fruit? I didn't take it from the tree, so blaming the wife. And, and then as for Eve, her reaction when being confronted by God, she blamed the serpent. And of course, the serpent is the one that tempted her. Lah. But it's like we blame Satan. You know, when we did something wrong, we say, yeah, Satan is the one that tempted me. No, Satan can tempt you, but you don't have to give in to temptation. So you cannot give excuse. You can say, oh, it's Satan that tempted me. That's why I committed this sin. Eve says, Satan deceived me, a serpent deceived me, and I add. <clears throat> Human nature is such that we will point to someone else when we are caught in sin. But God is never fooled. He sees and knows everything. Blaming doesn't work with Adam and Eve. Neither is blaming someone else work for us. We are personally responsible for our own sins. We cannot shift the blame to someone else. And so we need to own up our own sin. And finally, I want to talk about how the fall and the original sin impacted whole human race and the whole creation. Now the ramification for this fall of Adam and the original sin is very, very serious. It has impacted the whole human race. You look at the every culture, every sphere of life, even our own human heart, in fact, foremost in our own human heart, is tainted with sin. So we have this propensity to sin and to do evil. And, and even the whole creation, I would just mention uh, two, two, part of the, uh, two verses. One is Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Sin imputed through Adam fall and death came to everyone. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, Sin entered the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all, all sin. So everyone is born with a sinful nature because sin has affected humanity, has affected human heart. Everyone is dead in transgression and sin. And everyone will also die a physical death. Now, of course, Adam and Eve did not uh, immediately die a physical death. Later, we'll come to that. But everyone will also die a physical death. Theologians call this the fall and the original sin, which I've already alluded. And everyone will die a physical death. But what is more serious is the second death uh, uh, re uh, refers to the total and final separation from God in Revelation chapter 20, 14. Before the fall, Adam and Eve loved to be in the presence of God. You know, to have intimacy with God, communion with God, fellowship with God. And they love and enjoy the company of God. And after the fall, something happened to them and it also affected us. That's why many people do not want to come into the presence of God. They read the Bible, want to commune with God. They find boring. They don't want, they don't want to be in the presence of God. And sin affected our relationship with God, our fellowship with God. We want to run away from God. We want to hide from God. But what is more serious is a second death. It's a total separation from God. The, the, the alienation from God because of the fall 
And then the, the total separation from God, the second death, is much more serious because it's permanent. While on earth, there is something in this life that we can still do by going to God and cry out to God. And sin not only affected human nature, human heart, but it also affected the whole of creation in Romans chapter 8. And I wouldn't go into that. But let me end by saying this. Only through God, only God through the redemption, through the redemptive work of Christ can deal with our sinful nature. That is the atonement of Christ is God's provision to deal with our sin, our guilt and shame. Now Jesus once for all sacrifice provides forgiveness for sin and of those who believe for those who believe in him. Our sense of shame and guilt can only be dealt with through the finished work of Christ. Now let me end by quoting the story recorded in John chapter 8. A story of the Pharisees that brought a woman caught in adultery and they made her stand before the group and humiliated her. I can imagine her shame, her sense of shame while teaching, uh, Jesus was teaching a group of people in the temple courts. And then of course, to cut the long story short, Jesus was dealing with the Pharisees and say, if anyone who have not sinned, let you be the first to cast the first stone. And then one by one, all the Pharisees left. And then Jesus asked the woman, has no one condemned you? And the woman said, no, no one actually spoke the word to condemn her anymore. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and live your life of sin. Meaning that Jesus communicated that her sins are forgiven by him. She is fully accepted by Christ. And of course, Jesus later on went to the cross to die for her, for her sin, to actualize the forgiveness. So this sense of shame can only be dealt with through the finished work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. I remember in 1980 in a conference, <clears throat> I saw an incident until today I cannot forget a young woman after hearing the sermon, she fell on the floor and cried and wept and wept for hours. Then I asked, you know what happened? And then the pastor said that this woman, of course they later talked to her, she had a, a colorful past, a shameful past. And then she heard the good news and then she found a sense of being lifted and she just wept and cried. You know, this, this sense of being, being forgiven of sin, you know, the shame being covered and the guilt feeling being lifted and being accepted by God, accepted by God through Jesus Christ. Now, so, so only through, through, the, through the finished work of Christ can this sin and shame be dealt with because God declared us righteous, that God accepted us fully on the call of our faith and believe in the finished work of Christ. Forgiveness and acceptance free us from the burden of shame and guilt. 
So we are no longer defined by our sins. We are defined by our new identity in Christ. We are children of God, dearly loved by God, and redeemed by Him, accepted by Him, and precious to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have dealt with the original sin and the fall of Adam, our sinful nature that we inherited from Adam has been dealt with through the finished work of Christ on the cross. The power of sin and the bondage of sin has been broken. And we thank you that as we continue to read the scripture, our hearts may be moved and touched by this act of sacrifice by the Son of God who died for us on the cross. And thereby help us to see the seriousness of sin in our own lives and the preciousness of the finished work of Christ. And thank you for this outworking of the redemptive plan of God as we continue to study the book of Genesis and to see this outworking of the redemptive plan of God being played out throughout the centuries, culminating to the coming of Christ. And indeed, Christ has come. And may this good news really set us free and grant to us the joy as we embrace and internalize the good news every day to know that we have been justified, that God has declared us righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. What a wonderful good news. And therefore, we now can live in freedom to serve you, to love you, and to make you known. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.